What are your thoughts on the title of Christian? Is there a difference between a business owner who is a Christian and a Christian business? And what are your thoughts on using scripture on t-shirts, mugs, and wall art? We're going to cover a lot today, and I promise that these will tie in together. We're going to be looking at how we can be Jesus' ambassadors in a world that's confusing, and look at how to study scripture in context. So I'll share how God has worked in my repurposed life to change my thinking, and then I'll give some tips on how we can apply that. Welcome to Life Repurposed. This is where midlife meets inspiration, practical guidance, and renewed purpose amid life's evolving chapters. We navigate faith questions and messy, uncertain twists with humor and a commitment to pursue treasure, even in the hard stuff. I'm your host, Michelle Rayburn, the author of books and Bible studies about finding hope in the trashy stuff of life. the benefits of the Life Repurposed podcast is that you get to go behind the scenes on my spiritual transformation while I encourage you on yours. This includes admitting that I really mess up some things. And when I look back at the past, I see things that I said and did in the past that I would undo if I could. But I'm still learning how not to mess up. So that means I'm not a perfect person. Translation, I wasn't perfect. I'm still not perfect, but God is working on me. I have a feeling that describes you as well. I mentioned last week that for a few weeks here, I'm exploring some phrases and terms that we use maybe at church or in our circles and our conversations with fellow Christians, and just looking at them from different angles to see if we can define them or even redefine them. So last week, we looked at what a biblical worldview might mean and how that can be different for each person, because how you see the Bible might be different from how somebody else sees the Bible. So even though we're all looking at how we can see life and interpret what's happening around us through Scripture, that interpretation might vary. This week, I want to talk about what it means for a person or something to be labeled Christian. We're going to go down to the basic foundation here, because uh, this is a Christian podcast, And we are talking about what it means to be Christian. So we're getting to the foundation here. And then I'll share some of the insights on what I've been rethinking and on how we can apply scripture to life. And then I will show you how these two things that we're going to talk about are separate but related. So if we get to the first part and you're wondering how I'm going to tie that all together, I promise you I'm a master at tying things together because there's a lot of loose ends in my brain and I'm really good at tying up those strings. I like words a lot. And so I like to think about what they mean. And that means it often leads to some self-examination and some discovery as I'm thinking through those things. That's why I decided to start off with the word Christian. It's listed in the dictionary as both a noun and an adjective. But I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about what it means when we use the word. Are we using it as a noun or a title? Or are we using it as a descriptor, an adjective? Maybe we throw it around like confetti at a celebration. We've got Christian businesses, Christian apparel, Christian books and movies, and Christian schools. What does it mean for something or someone to be Christian? When we say we support a, quote, Christian business, unquote, are we implying that the business itself follows a particular set of commandments for customer service or its principles? Or is it just run by individuals who happen to identify as Christians? 
When we talk about Christian apparel, does it suggest that a particular style that's preferred by someone would be um, a style that's preferred by all people of the Christian faith? Okay, I'm exaggerating on that one, but um, is it about the message that's displayed on the design? Is it related to a brand label? And what exactly makes a book or a publisher Christian? I write Christian books, but what makes them Christian? Does a Christian school include theology in every class? Or does it mean there's a weekly chapel service? What is the spectrum of what that could represent? I'm asking a lot of questions, I know. So we've become so accustomed to adding Christian as a prefix to various aspects of our lives that it almost feels like we've slapped a holy sticker on them without really thinking about it much. So this is an episode about contemplation. I'm going to ask you to push you a little bit for you to think. But let's pause for a moment and ponder. Are we taking the title of Christian seriously Or have we turned it into a fashionable accessory? When we use the term, let's make sure it's not just a label, but that it's a profound reflection of our values and our beliefs. So as we navigate a sea of holy merchandise, are we truly living up to the weighty title of being Christian and living out the principles of Jesus Christ? I'm going to take this example to the Christian term in the business realm, just because it's an easier one for me to give multiple examples on. And it's one you probably have heard quite commonly, especially in Christian circles. There it is again, Christian. In our church circles, in our Christian circles, we might have people encouraging one another to support, quote, Christian businesses. So there are two examples that will make a difference as to where we put the emphasis. So the first one here is where we are talking about a Christian, and then in quotes, business owner. Okay, so Christian business owner. And here, business owner is the person, and Christian is their title. So this would mean a Christian who owns a business. Now, the other way of saying it would be to put Christian business in quotes, I'm only doing them in quotes so you can understand the difference in grouping the words. Christian business owner. It sounds exactly the same as when I first say it, but the meaning conveyed is different because we're saying Christian business and then the person who owns that business. So we mean when we say it that way, a person who owns a Christian business. There's a difference between a Christian who owns a business and a person who owns a Christian business. And the difference is mostly in our minds and how we perceive that. So where we put the emphasis on the organization, using Christian more like an adjective, it changes when we're putting the emphasis there versus on the person, using it as a title for the person. It's like this, if I were to say there's no such thing as a Christian car, but there might be a Christian in the driver's seat. Okay, so we're thinking about the car itself or the business itself is not necessarily Christian, but there might be a Christian in the driver's seat. That's the distinction. Now, this isn't really just a game of semantics. It's really about being radically different. It's having a radically different mindset in each place. And so I want to continue with that example of a Christian business owner so that we can just break that apart a little bit and look at how that might look in real life. So With a Christian person 
at the helm of a business. It's about personal conviction and how that person lives out their beliefs in the daily grind and also how that person structures the business they own. So it's about integrity, compassion, and a genuine commitment to following the example of Jesus Christ. The business itself might not scream Christian from the rooftops. It might not make any mention of Jesus anywhere in the business marketing, the description, the name, or anything, anywhere on the website, on the about page, or anything. But it echoes those values in in its very essence because of the way the person running it chooses to operate it with a focus on, for example, loving people and serving with integrity. This includes a flexible policy that allows people to request time off to attend religious services and the freedom to reserve the maybe the work conference room for off time use for Bible studies with coworkers. But none of this is officially sponsored by the business. It's just this flexibility and freedom for people to express their faith. And I'm going to look at it in this hypothetical example that I'm giving as maybe a place where people of many faiths or no faith at all are welcome to work there, as long as they agree to, say, a company tagline that says, we value people above profit. Now, obviously, with labor laws, there is no discrimination. So people of many faiths or no faith at all are welcome to work at your business, even if you are a Christian business owner. So let's just make that clear. I understand how that works, but we also know how it works kind of behind the scenes sometimes. So let's Keep in mind that there are some unspoken values that might come out in some workplace culture. And I'm not going to go into all that because I'm not an HR expert. I don't know enough about any of that. But we're looking at this example of a business with a Christian at the helm where you can tell there's something different about the integrity of this business, but you might not have any idea that the owner or the business itself have any Christian connections. I once had somebody ask me right before making a big career change if I was going to be working for a Christian business. And I said, no, it's not a Christian business. Um, And then the next question was, is your boss a Christian? I don't really know. It wasn't something I had really discussed with the person I was going to be working for. So the implied message here was that as a Christian, I ought to be working for Christians. I ought to be working in a business that had a mission that was related to spreading the message of the gospel or ministry, something like that. Now, I don't blame this person for their questions because, honestly, my mindset has changed so much over time. So there was a time way in my past where I actually thought this was a good idea that Christians should work for Christians. We should... um, work in business places that have to do with specifically spreading the gospel. And and there's a big problem with that because obviously um, there are a lot of jobs, <laughs> including a lot of service industries, retail, any business you can think of where operating it as a Christian ministry would just not work for the business. Um, so let's look at a second hypothetical situation where we're looking at a little different business model and how um, somebody might label something as a Christian business. This particular business that we're thinking of hypothetically adds Christian on its branding. 
its tagline, its business description, and more. The about page on the website says Christian owned and operated. And there's a policy at the company to pray before every board meeting. There are weekly chapel services for employees to attend, and they aren't mandatory, but if they choose to skip, team members must keep working at their desks during that time. Employees are not required to be Christians at hiring, because like I said, that would be against the law. But the management operates with integrity. They follow the fundamentals of Christian beliefs at work. And so there's this under underscore of Christian principles that are in this workplace. Um, at this business, again, hypothetical business, many Christians are attracted to working there because it feels like a safe place to work, and they find encouragement from working with many others who have a very similar mindset to theirs. They know that their organization benefits charities, for example, that make a difference, and they like that. They love seeing Bible verses printed on their paychecks and seeing evidence of that mindset wherever they are at work. Now, I'm giving these examples not to be critical or condemning in any way, but in a way that makes us think. Which of these two businesses is Christian? In both, actions speak louder than words. I'm going to say that neither of these is a Christian business because we're looking more at being Christians who operate in the workspace and in the business space rather than labeling our business or our company or whatever we do specifically that way. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to everything because Christian churches, Christian podcasts. Okay, you. I'm going to ask you to read between the lines and understand exactly what I'm saying here rather than trying to insult your intelligence by assuming that you're going to come up with all the hypotheticals there. The main goal here is that actions speak louder than words. Christian is not an adjective to be used as a savvy marketing move to attract a particular demographic to work at our companies. With either one, how people practice their values at work makes all the difference. Christian is not a tag to be used as an adjective to try to convince people to align with us. But for a long time, I used it that way. It was a safety net I could use to make sure I connected with the right people, supported the right causes, and aligned with like thinkers. If you've read the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, you might see some parallels in what Jesus told the people when a religious expert asked Jesus what this person needed to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him, Well, actually, he asked him, you know, he asked him a question back. It's so brilliant. When someone tries to trap you, you just ask a question back. And he said, tell me what the law of Moses says. And the man replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the man was looking for a way to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Don't we love loopholes? I'm always looking for the loophole. So Jesus told a parable because there's no better way to illustrate something than with a story, right? So in the story, a man is left beaten and robbed by the side of the road. And it wasn't the religious bigwigs who came to the rescue. 
The unexpected hero was a Samaritan, someone from a group who was considered outsiders by their societal standards. The man we refer to here as the Good Samaritan didn't go around wearing a badge that said Good Samaritan Incorporated. He didn't have the logo on a polo shirt. He didn't have a neon sign proclaiming his goodness. His actions spoke louder than any label ever could. Now, when we fast forward to our discussion, talking about the word Christian, being Christian is not about grand declarations or flashy signs. It's about living out the values in the nitty-gritty of everyday decisions. This Good Samaritan didn't need a marketing campaign to prove he was a good neighbor. He just acted on his convictions. Wherever we are, it's about embodying the principles of Jesus, being a neighbor to those in need, whether or not there's a giant Christian banner hanging over the door, whether or not we expressly label something as Christian. When we call someone a Christian, it's not merely a descriptive term like tall or creative. It's a noun. It carries weight. It's a title earned through a conscious decision to align our life with the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's not a passive membership. It's an active agreement to be a part of a community that strives to embody love and compassion and integrity. The title Christian should stand out as one that demands something more profound than just tacking a label on to the front of somebody's name and calling themselves a Christian. And this is not because there's some exclusivity or superiority in carrying this title, but because of the nature of taking on Christ's name. It's a commitment to a set of principles that goes beyond what happens at church or in prayer time or when we're in agreement with like-minded people around a boardroom table. It isn't a checkbox on a survey. It's a way of life. We can live this way of life even in places where not one person knows whether or not we go to church every week. It should become evident over time that we've committed to walk in Jesus' footsteps, but it doesn't have to be labeled anywhere on us. When God begins to repurpose in this aspect of our lives, He opens up our eyes and surprises us. And when this happened in my life, He showed me how my purpose could extend far beyond the church walls. How serving as a worship leader honored him, but serving outside of the church honored him too. I began to see how being a Christian isn't so much about aligning with all the right people, but about conforming myself to Jesus and asking him to shape me into someone who looked like him. Imagine I gave you a colorful play slice of pizza, play food. I gave you this slice of pizza, and then next to it, I put a hot-from-the-oven slice of real pizza. One looks like pizza, sure, but we all know it's made of plastic. And the other is pizza. It smells like pizza, it oozes cheese and sauce, and it tastes like pizza heaven. Using Christian as an adjective is like plastic pizza. When we ask God to conform us to become like Jesus, using Christian as a noun and not an adjective, we ask God to make us over to taste like Jesus to those who meet us. We become the aroma of the qualities of Jesus. Here are a few of the real deal qualities that make someone like Jesus. Compassion. Jesus was known for his deep empathy and compassion towards those who were suffering or marginalized. Love. 
Central to his teachings, Jesus emphasized the unconditional love for God, for oneself, and for others. Humility. Despite his divine status, Jesus exhibited such humility, even washing the feet of his disciples as a symbol of service. Forgiveness. Jesus preached forgiveness and then demonstrated it through his actions with sinners and towards those who betrayed him. Kindness. Acts of kindness were integral in Jesus' ministry, whether it was the healing of the sick or the feeding of the hungry or the comforting of sad people, he was there. Selflessness. Jesus prioritized the needs of others above his own, teaching his followers to live lives that were selfless and full of sacrifice. Wisdom. Jesus was renowned for his profound teachings from the time he was 12 years old, teaching in the temple, teaching parables to people, and offering this ability of insightful guidance in various situations. Inclusivity. Jesus welcomed everyone, regardless of their social status, ethnicity, background. He broke down societal and social barriers. Faith. Jesus demonstrated unwavering faith in God and encouraged his followers to trust his Father. From confronting religious authorities to facing his own impending crucifixion, Jesus exhibited courage in the face of challenges. God is challenging me not to settle for the plastic version of Christianity. The change happens when we ask to be made over, transformed into something that not only looks like Jesus, but truly tastes like Jesus to those who meet us. So as we strive to embody the qualities we've explored, love and compassion, humility, forgiveness, and the others, we're essentially saying, God, make us the real deal. We're not just playing pretend. We're asking for a profound makeover, a spiritual and moral transformation that radiates the authentic aroma of Jesus. Here's the challenge. In a world filled with plastic pizzas, let's be the ones who offer the real deal. Let's be the living, breathing examples of what it means to be like Jesus in the business world, at school, at home, at church, wherever we are. Because at the end of the day, it's not just about looking the part. It's about living a life where people experience a taste of the love and grace and goodness of Jesus Christ. I promised you that there was a part two to today's episode. So I also want to talk about something that is still in progress for me, just like the first part. And I think God has been really pressing this one on me because it's challenged me, and I think it might challenge you too. It might shake you up a little bit because it might take you out of your comfort zone from how you've always done things. I haven't, I hope I haven't scared you because it's really not that scary. This has been a slow process for me, but the more I hear phrases used or practices explained, I start to question the origin and the root of it. Where does this come from in scripture? And oftentimes I'll find out that there's like one verse that a ministry is founded on or a uh, maybe it's a sermon series on something. Uh, maybe it is a mission statement. Uh, maybe it's your life verse. You've maybe heard that phrase when you pick your favorite verse. Or maybe it's just a verse that's printed on a mug or a t-shirt or something like that. So um, one of these happened in particular to me recently. And so I want to tell you about it because it made me go searching to the Bible for answers. Sometimes we hear a phrase over and over, and then all of a sudden we're like, what does that really mean? I've heard that said so many times. So I get group prayer requests and all kinds of things from different groups and stuff that I'm in. 
And I've seen some of them in multiple places, social media, email. A prayer request will come through and it will begin on the subject line or the beginning of the email with come into agreement with me. So it says come into agreement with me. And then there's the prayer request that's shared. And if someone didn't grow up in church, it might sound like a really awkward phrase to begin an email with, you know, come into agreement with me. I need prayer for blah, blah, blah. Well, first, I want to look at where it comes from, and then we're going to zoom out a little bit on that passage. So this expression is based on Matthew 18, verse 19, where Jesus is speaking. And in this, just this particular verse, he says, I also tell you this. If two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. Okay, so Jesus speaking, I tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. When shared along with a prayer request, it's usually done, um, this is spoken as someone saying that I'm asking others to join me in praying specifically about something. And based on what I've seen taught about this verse and how it's used in the context of prayer, teachers understand this to mean God shows up for that prayer in a way that he doesn't when an individual prays. It's presented by some teachers as a promise that God will show up and he will answer this prayer if you stand in agreement with one another and you pray this. So that's where this term, come into agreement with me, comes from. But is this really what Matthew 18 verse 19 is about? And This is where we have to zoom out. We have to look at the bigger picture, even the verses that are just before and after it. We don't have to go even very far out sometimes to see what we call context. We look at who it was written to, where did it happen, and what was said around it. What was the theme of the verses before and after that? Oftentimes that amount of zooming out is enough for us to see that, wow, this thing I saw printed on a shirt or sent in an email or sent in a greeting card or whatever really isn't about that thing at all. So on this one, when we zoom out a little bit, we see how it makes such a huge difference. Because Matthew 18, where this is from, is a passage of the Bible where Jesus was talking about disciplining wayward disciples. We might say the church, but it's too early. The church hasn't even, as we think of it, hasn't been formed yet. So it, it really isn't like discipline within the church even yet. It's just disciples that are, Jesus is talking about what, how do you handle it when somebody else sins? And um, it's when a brother sins. They call each other brothers because they see each other as part of the family of God. Um, so that all makes sense that they'd be called brothers. Okay, so his followers had asked him who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven at the beginning of Matthew 18. And then Jesus had said, only those who turn from their sin and become like a humble child who have no confidence in their own power, these are the ones who are part of my kingdom, Jesus being my. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives a parable about how God pursues people who wander and how he restores them, about how he chases after one person like a shepherd going after one sheep that ran away and leaving 99 sheep. Okay, so it's all about restoration for the one who, who wanders, who's wayward. And Jesus gives instructions then after that parable and how to deal with someone who sins. And he gives this authority to the disciples to work, to restore these wayward ones. So he gives this promise then in verses 19 and 20, 
of Matthew chapter 18, where he said, I tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. And the next verse after that, verse 20, for where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. So the discussion that continues after those verses then continues with the topic of forgiving others who have sinned against you. There's a question, how often should I forgive? Again, those loopholes. Do I have to do it how many times? And what does God expect of those who need to do the forgiving when someone has harmed them, um, not just those who have done the misdeed? And so there's this whole passage is about restoration when someone has sinned. There's no evidence in the passage that Jesus's words were general instructions regarding prayer. Instead, the context says it's specific to matters of this disciple and, and just saying that Jesus is among you when you agree in this discipline and when you seek the Father. So here we have a verse that's often used to teach about prayer. It's used in requesting prayer of others. If you search Matthew 18, verse 19, you're going to find it all over the place teaching on prayer. And like I said, it's on greeting cards and it's quoted often, but it's plucked out of this scripture, almost like a decorative ornament. And then... It's used to make a point, but a point that is far different from what Jesus really said. And context in scripture isn't just background noise. It's really the foundation of interpretation. We have to look at the cultural, the literary, the historical backdrop that frames the message of the Bible. And when we neglect context, we misapply and misunderstand, and it really permeates our interpretation of scripture then. Now, even without getting a whole lot of commentaries or studying at a scholarly level, we really can practice this simple zooming out and seeing a verse in the context in which it was written. And then in the bigger context, we can move out even farther and look at chapters on either side of it and then look at other books in the Bible to see what does the whole Bible say about this. So if I were using this on prayer, I'd have to pull out a little bit and look at what the whole Bible says. Now, I... I've made so many scripture graphics to post on social media in the past. I've drawn artwork using single verses. I've talked about life verses and more. I'm not here to judge or condemn, but I'm questioning my own practices and bringing you along in my thought process because I've learned that there are some aspects to consider when we think about why context matters in biblical study and how easy it is for us to mislead somebody else by accident if we're not careful. We, If we look at context, there's just a couple of things I'm going to give you without going into really a scholarly study of something, but um, context number one is multifaceted. In, in biblical study, this is akin to understanding a lot of details, like the setting, the circumstances, the purpose behind each verse. Every word and phrase and narrative is intricately woven into a broader fabric of a book, a chapter, or a letter. And so if we disregard the context, it's like taking a quote out of a conversation we have with someone and just quoting this one little piece of the conversation without understanding the dialogue's flow and the tone and everything else happened around it. And so it really leads to a misinterpretation. And we know we don't like to be quoted out of context. And yet we do that with scripture sometimes. The second thing that we need to look at is historical context. And this one has to do with the backdrop 
around which the Bible was written. It was written in a specific time and culture, addressing unique challenges and circumstances for people. And so, for instance, um, a verse addressing societal norms in ancient Israel might not have a direct parallel in our contemporary context. Um, And if we ignore the historical setting, it's really easy to misinterpret the Bible then. And um, we just need to really understand who it was written to and for what purpose. The third one is cultural. I've kind of mentioned that already, but cultural nuances play a pivotal role. There are expressions, idioms, customs. You know, we have sayings we have that won't make sense to somebody 10 years from now. And there are some of those that happen when the when scripture was written too, where they get lost in translation and they're unfamiliar to us as modern readers. So a verse might have a different significance if we understand the cultural framework and the original audience and all of that. And then the final one, the fourth one that I want to mention, there's others, but these are the the most common ways of looking at context, and it is literary. And I don't understand a lot of the literary context. I know like in Psalms, there's a lot of literary techniques that are used and it can really change an understanding of the content and um, the style and purpose and structure. All of that says something about the author's intended message. All of this is to say that without context, verses of the Bible can be weaponized to support our personal biases We can create theological errors or cultural misunderstandings when we use our scripture out of context. And so it becomes a fueling source for controversies, and it has historically been this problem in Christianity. So I want to encourage all of us to think about this then in practical terms. So I've already established that there's a danger of studying just one verse because we can miss out on the depth, the richness, the transformative power of the entire message. But how does this look in practical terms? Well, in teaching the Bible, one of the things I'm practically doing in my life is using larger chunks. Now, not not just in teaching, in in studying as well. But in teaching the Bible as well, I'm using larger chunks and I'm encouraging others to read more of it. So if I'm tempted to present just one verse to prove a point, in the past, I used to go searching and find 10 other verses that say speak about love, if I'm speaking on love. And I'll I'll find a bunch of passages that all have the word love. And I would just kind of pick the best four and list those four or five verses in the talk that I was giving or in the devotional or whatever I was writing. And I've realized that it's so much more effective to find one longer passage of scripture and camp there and really study that because there's so much more in the context on either side of it and not just in the word study of the word love. I'm practicing zooming out. And this has opened my eyes to just how many scriptures I've used out of context in my teaching, my writing, my podcast, my personal study. So if you're looking for a simple way to start looking at some of your favorite single verses, I'm going to give you some ideas. So if you're questioning like, I love this verse and I've always loved it, and I don't know if I fully understand it in context, I'm going to give you some simple things you can do that don't involve um, going and purchasing a systematic theology book or, or a giant commentary or anything like that. The first one is just choose your favorite verse that you've often quoted and look it up and read it in a larger section in the Bible where it comes from. So the example I gave you from Matthew 18, if I were really using this one a lot, 
for my my whole philosophy on prayer, I would go to Matthew 18 and read that whole chapter. The second thing that you can do right there in your Bible is look at some of the footnotes that are given in the passage and see if there's any footnotes there that add cultural context or explanation. This is a lot more helpful than trying to look up articles or things people have written on the internet because they could be misquoting it too. And what's happening there in the footnotes in the Bible is it has gone through a review process with a bunch of editors who have been translating and studying. And so you're much more likely to get something accurate there if you're looking at footnotes. And the third thing that you can do then from there is compare different translations. Again, reading the whole passage and not just a verse and look at how the different translations footnote and what they have in there as a footnote. That's going to add some additional understanding of a passage. Now, if you can study further and maybe from right there, you can figure out who was this written to, who is the larger audience that might also be reading it, like we're part of the larger audience that studies something. So if you were, for example, going to study Paul's letter to the Colossians, you could reasonably assume from the very beginning of the chapter that he was writing this to the people in Colossae. And then you can ask the questions. Do I know anything about the context, their challenges, his concerns, all of those kinds of things? Who might benefit from reading this letter? Like who else might Paul be sharing this with? Um, Just asking some of those kinds of questions. And then the last one here is to look for what else the Bible says about the same topic and then compare. Again, studying in larger sections. So You might find a cross-reference then where you see where this particular topic was covered in another scripture. And one of those that I'll give an example of is um, something that Jesus would say in the New Testament might be quoted from the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy or something like that. So if you want to do a more systematic approach for study, you'll find many other resources and tools that go into history and culture and more. But just doing this simple thing. It's been so helpful for me. I don't have to understand everything. I don't need to have a Bible degree or have a focused study on a particular book of the Bible for me to just see that there's a bigger context here that I was previously missing. Now, if we go back to that verse from Matthew 18 as that instruction for prayer, under the belief that when we only pray in, only if we pray in groups, will God be present and hear us, then It contradicts other things that Jesus says about prayer, if we really look at the Bible in the whole picture. For example, in Matthew 6, verse 6, Jesus said, When you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. Well, if I take that one out of context, I might believe that only in secret can I pray because that's the only way God's going to hear me. So if I look at the whole context, of the Bible, we see that this particular verse is talking about our motives. And Jesus was warning people not to put their religiosity on display so that other people would see them. It was not really about how to pray, but more about our motives when we pray. And we learn that by reading all of Matthew 6 rather than that one verse. I don't want to go too far down that path, because I could get into it really deep when I start talking. But when I look back at some of my early writing, I realized that I use scripture almost like decoratively. And I see this happen. I'm an editor. I'm a publisher of book compilations where I get submissions from various authors. And I sometimes receive pieces that have scripture just dotted in between. There's narrative from the author, and then there's just a scripture just there, just 
out by itself. It doesn't connect. There's no introduction on either side of it that says why it's there. And I realized it's just put there decoratively. Like we just plop scriptures in between things. And it's kind of like little wall plaques in writing or um, in our devotionals. And one of the things that's been convicting for me is the idea that scripture was not meant to be decorative. It's meant to be transformative. Deuteronomy 6 verse 9 is one that has been used as a marketing tool for why we need more scripture as wall art. It says, write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. This was an Old Testament instruction to the people of where they should keep the laws of God. And if we zoom out on that passage, we'll see that the theme of it was all a call for wholehearted submission and commitment to the Lord. It wasn't about the legalistic idea of writing out scriptures and wearing them, but people did it. (laughs) It goes full circle back to the religious expert that um, Jesus quoted in Luke 10 that I, when I was talking about a Christian business and the story of the Good Samaritan. In Deuteronomy 6, God's people were instructed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. There are places in the New Testament where Jesus quoted that scripture from Deuteronomy. We saw the one in Luke 10, where a religious leader quoted it back to Jesus when Jesus answered his question with a question. So centuries after Deuteronomy was written, some Jews followed these instructions from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to the letter of the law and tied little boxes with scripture in them on their foreheads and on their arms because it was talking about wearing scripture. And they just missed the point. And so I'm saying that so we know that we're not the only ones to miss the point or to use scripture in, in a way that was, wasn't really what God intended. Um, these were people who posted it up on their doors of their homes and, and were trying to be really legalistic about showing that they were studying scripture. And then Jesus reminded his disciples multiple times that it was nothing but hypocrisy if their hearts weren't in the right place. So a repurposed life is practicing living as a Christ follower and applying scripture for the purpose of transformation. By diligently applying the the study of context, we move beyond a mere knowledge to a transformative experience. The diligent study of scripture becomes a dynamic encounter with divine wisdom. It shapes our beliefs, influences our decisions, molds our character. And as we engage with intentional exploration of scripture and not just using scripture in a decorative way, we open ourselves up to the transformative power of God's word and we experience deep and lasting change that extends into every aspect of our lives. True transformation grounded in careful study and application of scripture becomes a journey of spiritual growth and it draws us closer to the heart of God. And now you can hopefully see why I wanted to ramble on here and cover the title of Christian alongside the study of scripture together in this episode, because when we take the title of Christian and see that as a transformative thing over our lives, and it's not just an adjective or something decorative we add in front of our name, It also extends into the study of scripture, where we don't just see God's word as decorative, but we see it as transformative. So my call to you today is, will you join me in practicing a pause whenever you see a verse by itself? All it takes is a quick look at the passage it's from, just to see, what's this about? 
I encourage you to develop some curiosity there and just take it a little step, open the word and see what it says. And I also ask, will you join me in acknowledging where we may have veered off course in our own interpretations and recognize that we're all works in progress? We can humbly correct any misconceptions and embrace the opportunity for growth and our collective pursuit of a deeper, more contextual understanding of God's word fosters a community of seekers where we're all committed to truth and wisdom. This is a life repurposed. As we share insights and learn from one another and continually refine our understanding, we become participants in a shared journey towards spiritual maturity. So let's take this step together, a step toward a more nuanced and accurate interpretation of Scripture, allowing God's transformative power to shape us into individuals who reflect His grace and truth. People who can wear the name Christian because it fits. I'll be continuing the discussion on life repurposed on Substack if you'd like to learn more about this. So I invite you to join me there. The easiest way to find it is just to go to liferepurposed.me. That's liferepurposed.me. Thanks for listening to Life Repurposed. Would you like more? Check out the Life Repurposed magazine on Substack and get resources, weekly musings, and conversations with others. Just go to liferepurposed.me.